Good morning, everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. Working five days and 40 hours a week is pretty standard for many American workers. Lots of us work more. But what if you could work fewer days a week and still earn the same amount of pay? How would that change your life? Coming up this hour, I'm talking with three guests about the possibility and promise of a shorter work week. A huge four-day work week trial was just completed in the UK, and the results show positive results across the board for employees and employers. And as we discuss this in a few minutes, I want to hear from you as well. Has your workplace tried a shorter work week? Tell us about it. Do you think working four days a week would improve the quality of your life? And if you are an employer, how do you feel about a four-day day work week. Phone lines are open. Here's the number to call. It's 651-227-6000. Again, the number is 651-227-6000, or you can call 800-242-2828. You can also reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Angela Davis, NPR. But first, it's Monday, and that means it's time to discuss the latest economic news with NPR's senior economics contributor, Chris Farrell. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Hi. Uh, I don't follow the bank industry closely, but I know a couple of things. The words bank failure, not a good thing. <laughs> also not a good thing to hear uh, the president making an announcement about the banking industry trying to uh, comfort people. So what's going on? Okay, so a couple of things. And just sort of the leap at the key question, I don't think that the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank, which is what we'll, we'll talk about in more detail, signals a layman moment. Thinking back to 2008 when Lehman Brothers went under mm-hmm. and you had all these uh, repercussions throughout the global financial system. We had this global credit crunch and we had ended up in the Great Recession. This does not appear to be a Lehman moment. You always had that element where you cross your fingers right. and like say – This feels familiar, but familiar. not this case. Uh, but the banking system is overall much healthier. And I think probably you know the key thing, if you don't pay a whole lot of attention to the banking system, I mean the key thing is, look, your deposits are safe. And that's one of the key messages that comes out of that. Okay, now I'll get to some details, okay? So this is the uh, Silicon Valley Bank, and uh, it's a uh, key bank in – uh, for the high tech industry, the high tech ecosystem, venture capitalists, venture capitalists are, f- you know, funding a startup. They'll put their deposits there in Silicon Valley Bank in California, in California, it's in Santa Clara, California. And, uh, it got into financial trouble and it followed right on Silvergate, which is a small, uh, small bank that lends to the crypto industry closed earlier in the week, then Silicon Valley Bank gets into trouble, then Signature, which is a New York-based bank with about $110 billion in assets, and Silicon Valley Bank has about $200 billion in assets. Uh, it also got into trouble. So the, the regulators decided, you know what? We're not going to see if this is going to have a bad effect or not in the financial system. We're going to move. So the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation took over Silicon Valley Bank. It also took over Signature Bank in New York. The federal government steps in. The federal government steps in. And then the FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the Federal Reserve, and the Treasury put out an announcement that all the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank and also at Signature Bank uh, were protected. They get the money today. They, they can go to the bank. They can get their money. They, they're they not enforcing the $250,000 limit, which is you know traditional. You're insured up to $250,000. All depositors, doesn't matter how much you have in there, in these banks, you're okay. The other thing is that the Federal Reserve said, hey, by the way, um, you got some losses on your portfolio bank. 
you can come to us. We'll make you a short-term loan, kind of help make you whole. Uh, so they actually took some dramatic steps to shore up the banking system. And then the president came out this morning. You might have heard uh, mm-hmm. a couple of his comments, but he said, look, no taxpayers on the hook with this. Uh, we are going to have to have stronger regulation coming out of this. And as he said, the banking system is strong. So the reasons the the bank, Silicon Valley Bank, failed has to do with its relationship with the tech industry? Yes, it does. And so Silicon Valley Bank is an unusual bank. And this is why initially there's this thought that it wouldn't have that big effect, but it ended up having a big effect or, or the regulators decided, let's not find out. So this is the bank to the high tech industry in Silicon mm-hmm. Valley. And it had all these deposits, Angela, it just came in. Remember, I mean, it's almost hard to remember right now, but the high tech industry was booming. Yes. Right. So all these deposits go in. What do they do with this money? They invested in long term bonds. The Fed Reserve, as we know, has been tightening interest rates. Interest rates have been going up. The bank had a lot of losses. And so it needed more money. But this is sort of the first social media run on a bank. A lot of uh, the Silicon Valley type said, get your money out of this. It's going to, this bank may fail. Um, and so that's when the regulators decided to step in. So what happens next? And how concerned should folks, you know, in Minnesota be concerned about, you know, the banks that we do business with? I think, you know, the really clear, clear thing is, you shouldn't be concerned with your bank. Now, not many of us have uh, over $250,000 uh, in a bank account anyway, which is your insured limit. And if you do, a lot of times you split it up into, into multiple accounts. So I don't think that, that you need to be worried about that. But the repercussions of this are going to be big. The political repercussions, the blame game has already started. And who's at fault for this? So you got the blame game. Plus, you had a number, you know, you're bailing out the tech bros. And the tech bros had been, you know, it's got this vocal libertarian component. And they'd been saying, oh, students, this student loan bailout should never happen. And this bailout should never happen. And then all of a sudden over the weekend, there was all these calls for, you know, hey, we Mm -hmm. need to be bailed out. We're critical Mm -hmm. to this economy. So I think the politics are actually going to get quite vicious. And uh, before I let you you go, as we talk about the big headlines, uh, other big news is the job report from Friday. it was a good number. Overall, it's a good number. You know, you created 311,000 jobs. We're, we're creating more than 500 and, you know, we're creating about 350,000 jobs a month. Uh, it's a very healthy economy in many respects. But because of all the turmoil in the banking system, the expectation after the job number that the Fed would hike its benchmark interest rate, the betting now is that the Fed is just going to say, hey, you know what? We're just going to pause. We're just going to keep the status quo for a moment and kind of, you know, take a look at the landscape and see what's going on. Mm. Well, Chris, thank you for uh, always uh, helping us uh, get a better understanding of the big news headlines (laughs) and explaining it in very conversational terms. I appreciate you. And actually, I want you, Chris, to stay here uh, through the rest of the hour because we're going to move into this discussion now about four-day work weeks. And, you know, this starts because, you know, last month I saw a headline in the Washington Post that said a four-day work week pilot was so successful, most firms say they won't go back. The secondary headline stated 15% of employees who participated said that no amount of money would convince them to go back to working five days a week. Again, that was a story in the Washington Post. But I want to talk about that right now. A recent pilot program in the UK did indeed test out four-day work weeks with fewer hours. 
and both employers and employees cited positive results. So let's visit this topic once again on the show. I have two guests joining me right now. On the line, we have Krista Lynn Manati, a professor of sociology at the University of North Dakota and co-editor in chief of the Social Science Journal. She has a PhD in sociology. Good morning to you, Professor Manati. Good morning. It's great to be here. Hi. And here in the Twin Cities, we have William Jones joining us. Uh, Professor Jones is a professor of history at the University of Minnesota who studies and writes about organized labor, unions, racial inequality, and the history of the civil rights movement. Welcome back to the program, Professor Jones. Hi, Angela. It's nice to be here. Good morning. And we're taking your phone calls, too. Has your workplace tried a shorter work week? Tell us about it. Do you think working four days a week would improve your quality of life? And if you are an employer, how do you feel about a four-day work week? Would this work for you? The phone lines are open. Here's the phone number, 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. You can tweet me at Angela Davis NPR. So, Professor Manati, let's talk about that UK pilot program. I read it was the world's largest four-day workweek trial. It took place from June to December of last year, involved about 3,000 employees at 61 companies. Now, what do you, first of all, what do you make of all this interest and experimentation with a four-day workweek, Professor Manati? Well, this is part of like a broader effort to try to understand the way these kind of workplace initiatives that introduce greater flexibility into the lives of workers, what the impacts of those are for both the workplace and the employees. And across the board, what these kind of studies show is these really wonderful positive impacts. This particular study is quite striking in terms of the uniformity and strength of relationships that they're finding in terms of improved mental and physical health for workers, better job satisfaction, less burnout, better work-life balance, making it easier for workers to combine work with other aspects of their lives. And then the company also benefiting in terms of reduced absenteeism, less turnover, increased productivity and revenue. Mm. Um, And it's also important to remember this is part of a broader effort on the part of these researchers. They've also studied workplaces in the United States, in Ireland, New Zealand, Australia, and they have other um, programs that are also currently going. So Mm -hmm. the results are going to just keep pouring in. And I have some more uh, details on the findings at at the end of the six months. Uh, My colleagues at at Marketplace, they highlighted these for us. 39% of participants were less stressed. 57% Uh, There was a 57% decrease in the number of staff leaving, 60% found it easier to balance caretaking responsibilities, and 62% found it easier to balance their work and social lives. And so, Professor Minotti, um, you know, employees are reporting, as you described, improved mental and physical health. But, you know, have have you seen this? Or what's your understanding as a sociologist about why, you know, going from five days to four days a week makes such a huge difference? Well, in this study, it's important to remember that, you know, they are literally cutting off a work day to, down to a 32-hour work week for most or some other meaningful reduction in work hours. So the model that they're using is doing 100% of the work for 80% of the, you know, and 80% of the time for 100% of the pay. So what happens when you open up like a whole extra eight hours into your life? 
It means that, you know, your pace can be more relaxed as you go about managing work and your other responsibilities. And I mean, that's just phenomenal for people to experience. Doctor's appointments, maybe taking care of, of other relatives. I know it was noted that people talked about the money they save because they didn't need childcare five days a week. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so it makes it easier to tend to these other responsibilities that you might have, whether that be children, um, aging parents, and it also just allows you to maybe do more things that you think are really meaningful, right. like civic participation, things like that. It's also important to note that employers in the pilot program stated that their company's revenue stayed broadly the same during that six-month trial, but also rose 35% on average when compared with a similar period from previous years. So employers also may be surprised, like this was not a bad situation. What do you think about that? I think it's fantastic. I think it's not particularly surprising, given what we know about these kind of initiatives, that anytime you give more power to workers, generally, that tends to have positive effects that flow to both the workers and to the employer. It's like a win-win kind of situation. Mm. Professor Jones, uh, let's bring you in. Uh, You're there at the University of Minnesota. You study labor history in the U.S. But first, what do you think about uh, this comprehensive trial and the the results, the, the feedback that we're getting now? Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. And I think that it, you know, it demonstrates, you know, at a moment when we are, you know, a lot of us are talking about work-life balance and work, you know, sort of burnout from work uh, mm-hmm. coming out of the pandemic. I think it's a really important addition to that conversation. So as we've discussed, that five-day, 40-hour work week is, is really ingrained in U.S. culture, but it wasn't always that way. So tell us more about the history. How did the 40-hour work week uh, come to be the norm here in the U.S., Professor Jones? Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think it really resonates with our with the moment we're in today. Um, so the the forty hour work week comes from the Fair Labor Standards Act, which was passed in nineteen thirty eight. It actually capped the work week at um, forty eight or forty four hours, and then was amended in nineteen forty for uh, to be f- the forty hour work week. It also included the provision for overtime. So if you go, you know, a time and a half for overtime, um, but that push really goes back to the late 19th century and a push for the eight hour day, which, you know, sort of eight hours at five days uh, established that idea of a 40 hour work week. And I think there's, there's two really important things that resonate for me with the history and, and where we're the conversation today. One is it, that push came from a struggle for work-life balance. People were leaving agriculture, going into wage work, and in agriculture, they were accustomed to working, you know, sort of having control over their working day. They had to work long days, but they would choose, you know, how long they worked. They also had control over which family members went to work. So children could come out of work to study or to go to school. Um, family members could take time from work to care for other family members or to, you know, keep a, fa- a household to cook. Um, and so part of the argument behind the eight-hour day was that people needed control over their workday, which is, you know, mm-hmm. what we're arguing about today, I think. Right, because um, things have really, really changed. I mean, the way that we spend our, our time now compared to maybe uh, decades ago. That's right. right? Yeah. yeah. So, so based on your knowledge of history, Professor Jones, how likely is it that a four-day, 32-hour 
work week could become standard here in the U.S.? <laughs> well, I mean, I think another thing that, you know, I think that comes out of the history is you know, one of the reasons that there was this push in the 19th century was the changing technological aspects of work. So this was a period of really rapid industrialization and workers were becoming more uh, productive, largely because of machinery. Mm-hmm. Um, and they argued that they should have some benefits of that. If they're there, they could produce more in an hour than right. they could before, then they should work for sh- shorter hours. The, the advantages of those shouldn't just go to the employers. And we're actually in a very similar position today. Because we're more um, technologically advanced. Exactly. So the average worker is four times more productive today than they were in 1950. So mm. according to that schedule, you know, mm-hmm. you could actually, you know, in 1950, the 40-hour work week was the norm. You could make the argument that people should just be working 10 hours a week and they could actually produce the same amount as they as a worker did in 1940 because of technological changes, computers and um, mechanization. Well, um, so, so in that sense, it's, you know, there's a reason for this. Right. And there's a justification whether, you know, the, the, the political question is whether uh, people can win that. And that actually in the you know, that push started actually in the 1860s. And it wasn't until the 1930s that it became federal law. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the four-day work week. Are we getting closer to it becoming the norm here in the U.S.? Uh, we're getting lots of phone calls. So I want to take some of them right now from listeners. You can call us at 651-227-6000 or call 800-242-2828. Let's go to Duluth, where I hear you have a lot of snow this morning in Duluth. We've got Virginia on the phone. Hi, Virginia. Hi there, and yes, we have lots of snow. <laughs> <laughs> so what can you tell us about a four-day work week? Uh, so I actually currently work a four-day work week. I am um, salaried at 32 hours. And so um, with me and my experience, you know, as an employee, I am, I believe, a lot more efficient. I have a lot less wasted time during the day. I know what I need to get done, and I know I have four days to do it. And so... Um, from that aspect, it's really helpful to just have less wasted time during my day. As an individual, I am a wife and a mom, and having that fifth day at the end of the week to, um, you guys have touched on all of it, you know, to have more time to myself with my family to get stuff done, it's totally changed how I feel about my job and how I feel about um just everything. You know, it's very, very helpful. Virginia, you're working four days a week. Are you working then 32 hours across the week or 40 hours across the week? Are you doing 10 hours a day or eight hours a day? Uh, Eight hours a day, 32. Right. And so what do you think you would earn more money if you chose to work five days a week? Or how does that factor into, you know, how you feel about it? Is it it worth it to you? For me, I would be making more money um, if I worked 40 hours. But personal choice. Um, it doesn't, more money doesn't take precedence over having that fifth day. All right. Thank you. That's Virginia and Duluth. Let's go to Minneapolis and take a phone call from Josh. Josh, what do you want to tell us about a four-day work week? So I'm probably one of the weirdos that no is working no, 40 no, no. hours or more than 40 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I work for a local trucking company here in <clears throat> Minneapolis, uh, moving around big heavy equipment, getting them to job sites. A trucking company. And, um, you know, lucky enough to love my job. And, uh, you know, sometimes those four-day work weeks can turn into 
six-day work weeks in the, you know, busy season in the summer. But I'm just thinking, you know, if this does begin to become the norm around Minneapolis, everyone kind of shooting for a four-day work week, how that could negatively affect employers that simply, you know, production is production, you know, Schedules. you can't just cut it to a four-day right. work week. That kind of screws everything up. Well, maybe they would have to negatively affect employers. If there were more employees, if there were more workers, would that solve the problem? But then that there's an expense in that as well. Yeah, I think that's another, you know, if you could put that nuance into it. But, you know, as we've seen, it's pretty obvious the labor shortage is real and really hasn't been getting any better. So thank you. That's just overall how you guys think it would affect employers that need those 40 hours or five days to operate. And Professor Jones, what do you say to that? Like uh, for the employer standpoint, um, getting things done, they need to be in operation five days a week. So what do they do? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're, I mean, you're right that the reality is that more people would have to be employed. Um, The the, one, a couple of things to keep in mind. I mean, the labor shortage that we're in right now is largely uh, created by people who have decided that the sort of bar to going into paid work is too high. They have other responsibilities. They, you know, they, they have concerns about going into work. So actually, you know, lowering the bar, making 32 hours instead of 40 hours would probably draw some people into the labor market who are not there now. Um, but the other thing I think is the issue of productivity. I mean, we have seen these really dramatic increases in productivity that have not been reflected in people's wages. So the sort of average wage, if you correct uh, for inflation, has stayed the same since 1970, mm-hmm. even though the, you know, the um, productivity has continued to rise really dramatically. And so it's also just a sort of question of whether workers deserve some of the benefits of those changes uh, or not. And I, and I think that's, a, you know, the, again, a political and a social question that we face. And uh, Professor Minotti, anything that you would add to what some of our callers just stated? Um, I would add that for many people, they get a lot of enjoyment, meaning, and identity from their work. And so in those cases, this might be a bit of a challenge, more of a heavy lift. And there's some occupations and sectors of the economy where that tends to be stronger, especially like in high status type work where people are really encouraged to work long hours. So in that case, you really need to work on changing the culture of the workplace to be more accepting of people working shorter hours. Otherwise, this sort of um, change is not going to be effective over the long term. And the other thing that I would add is that shorter hours is not necessarily what all workers need, that there are some workers struggling to get the number of hours that they need to make ends meet Mm -hmm. um, in our kind of bifurcated Mm -hmm. economy that we have. And then for for other workers, it might not be the number of hours that is troubling for them. It might be more the timing of those hours and the fact that they don't have control over when they're working. Or it might be the place where they're working, like maybe flex place arrangements would be very beneficial for them. So I, I just think it's important to remember that this is part of a bigger puzzle of trying to offer workers more flexibility, more control over what they're doing and what that looks like might differ 
um, from worker to worker, workplace to workplace. All right, we're going to take more phone calls from listeners. But first, uh, Professor Jones, I know you have to leave us now because you have a class to teach. Uh, thank you for taking time to talk with us today. We've had uh, William Jones with us, a professor of history at the University of Minnesota who studies and writes about organized labor unions and racial inequality. Thank you, Professor Jones. Thanks for including me. Okay. <laughs> Well, Chris Farrell is still here with us in the studio. Chris, uh, many ways to do this shorter work week, um, doing four 10-hour days or, uh, as in the case of this uh, study, uh, doing four days with reduced hours uh, in the same pay. So what are your thoughts about what are you seeing happening uh, right now as people sort of experiment with different work schedules during the pandemic? So a big part of this is having some certainty. Um, if you remember before the pandemic, there was this. Big I don't remember. <laughs> I know it's true. Honest, but before the anything. pandemic, there was this big movement <laughs> where companies were sort of with certain other workers. They wouldn't tell them how many hours they were going to work during uh, the day until the day of. And then they would get a notice. We need you to come in at 10 o'clock this morning and work from 10 to 3. And this caused all kinds of problems with, as you can imagine, with child care and just sort of like being right. able to plan your life. So I think a big part of this is you need to know what your hours are going to be. You do actually do need a schedule. Mm -hmm. And this is part of a bigger conversation. I mean, again, I'm going to go back to before, you know, remember before (laughs) before the pandemic. Remote work. I mean, the notion, you're in management would go, you cannot work at home. I need to see you. I need you have to be here and you're part of our organization. And Mm -hmm. if you're not here, you're off playing and I don't want to pay you. Right. Right. Total change. That has shifted. So Mm -hmm. The word that comes out of all this is greater flexibility, greater control, more autonomy. And I think the four-day work week, particularly the 32-hour four-day work week, is really a, a part of that discussion just as hybrid work has become almost the norm, right? Mm-hmm. For at least the office worker, hybrid work has become norm. The four-day work week has really the opportunity to expand itself beyond the office worker. And that's one of the intriguing aspects of it. I love what Professor Jones pointed out about technology, like the like as we look at history, as we saw sort of yeah. like uh, um, the industrialization uh, age happen and, and like more uh, equipment allowing like assembly line workers to do more in a shorter period of time. That's what led to, you know, us getting to 40 hours a week rather than more. And so, like, why wouldn't we be ready for the next thing? Yes. And one of the things in the backdrop is this labor shortage is not disappearing. Uh, We are moving into a period where, uh, with the aging of the workforce, with having fewer children, that in the backdrop, labor is the scarce resource, which is what is going to force management to make these adjustments. We can force management to do things? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. With that, let's take another phone call. Uh, We're talking about uh, the possibility of a four-day work week. As more studies and surveys are conducted across the world, uh, could this become the norm here in the U.S.? Let's take a phone call now uh, from Chuck in Woodbury. Good morning, Chuck. What do you want to tell us? Uh, Good morning. Uh, First, I'd like to tell you that I've got a Bachelor of Arts degree in History and Sociology. Oh, this is right up your alley. I worked I worked four tens for probably over ten years, but it was four tens, forty hours a week. But it was a straight ten, so you didn't have to give them like a half an hour or an hour for lunch. It was Ooh. just ten and done. And I commuted sixty five miles one way. That cut out one of those trips. Uh, and I was also your labor historian might be interested to know that I was also a teamster. And so if I worked, I worked Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Mm-hmm. If I worked Wednesday and Thursday, I got time and a half. If I worked Friday, I got double time. 
because that was basically my Sunday. So, so it, you what's know, your opinion? It, what do you think really about it? For the, pardon? What's your opinion? Do you think this is a good thing to work four days a week? Oh, I thought it was great. Right. Yeah, it's right. one less trip to work. Another thing that maybe you should tie into this uh, discussion of a four-day work week is to not have the traditional work week Monday through Friday. We could cut down on congestion on highways and everything else if some people worked Wednesday through Sunday as opposed to Monday through Friday. And Chuck, what did you but, do on your three days off? What? How did you spend that what time? What did I do? Mm-hmm. I I trained my horses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, we, we raised and, and competed on horses, so I used that time to train or condition my horses. And, and uh, so there later was... on, I started doing farrier work. So I'd do a little bit of horseshoeing on my days off, and uh, it was just it was it was just great. All right. So you think it made, no. it made you a happier person? So then you were just better oh, yeah, in everything you did. Yeah, because we live twelve miles east of Pine City, a five minute walk to the St. Croix River, and people in the cities who had cabins up there and stuff. So they would come up on Friday, and I'd leave. I right. leave when the cabin people came up. <laughs> I'd be up there on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, uh, and we had the place all ourselves. Oh, the cabin people. All right. Thank you. Let's talk in Woodbury. All right. Let's go to Lake Elmo, where Mike is on the phone. Mike, thank you for waiting, and what do you want to tell us? Hey, thanks, Angela. Uh, great to be chatting with you. Um, really timely discussion. We've So I'm a small business owner, um, seven full-time employees here in Minnesota. Oh, great. Um, a, few, a few remote and we've been on a four-day work week for the last year. Um, we actually started March 1st of 2022, and, well, so year and two weeks now. Okay, how's it going? Um, what are you finding? It's been it's been life-changing, you know. It's been just really an amazing opportunity to, to do more with our life than, you know, just spend 75% of our of our days working. And um, it's, uh, you know, from, from a personal standpoint, I don't think this comes as any surprise to anybody. It's been, it's been amazing. And what kind of work uh, does your company uh, or what do your employees do? What kind of business is this? Sure. So we are in a position to, to be able to more easily do this because we're fully online. Um, we're a client services company and we do interface design and user experience design. What does that mean? Like and, uh, graphic artists? Yeah, graphic artists for more digital products. Okay. All right. And so what did you see? What have you seen with your workers? What are they saying about this four-day work week? Well, they love it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, we, 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 re- it's, it's, I, you know, can't be a surprise. It's, it's great. You know, we, we get more time with our family, more time with our friends, um, and exercise time for mental health. Uh, just really all the benefits that you would associate with the, and by, day are they doing four days and 10 hours a day, or are they doing four days a week and 32 hours a week? 4.32, Monday through Thursday. Um, and, you know, you talked earlier about uh, efficiencies. It really has forced us to really go after inefficiencies and, and to, you know, we're doing a lot of uh, screen recordings, um, obviously meeting through Zoom, we do an automated poll two days a week that allows us to kind of give our status in a quick, abbreviated manner. Um, all sorts of just little things to, to really uh, to really make the most of those 32 hours. And Mike, are you paying them the same? Has their pay state the same as if they were working five days a week? Yeah, uh, it, it has. It's increased. We've, we're, we're doing, we did nice bonuses and increases last year as well. And I, you know, I will say that we've really worked towards this, and we're we're in a 
stable position to be able to do that financially. We've got stable clients that absolutely love us, and um, that's that's the bar that we have to meet in order to keep this going. Is um, stable clients that love the work that we do that um, that are you know not <laughs> that are able to um, be flexible on Fridays. You know, we if if they need to meet on Fridays, we will oftentimes meet with them. I think on average we put in about. 10 hours on all Fridays um, last year combined. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, so it's as, been great on both sides. Too. Yeah, as the business owner, it sounds like you're doing fine. Your, your revenue is fine, and, and it sounds like the morale is good. Yeah, it's great. And, you know, we're not growth-oriented. I'm not, you know, we're, we're, we intend to stay small and efficient because that's how I think we work best. Um, you know, it would be a different story if I was, Mm-hmm. trying to to build a hundred person agency yeah it depends on the, the size of the company and well Mike thank you uh, Mike and Lake Elmo a small business owner with uh, seven employees I, I believe you said thank you for calling in Mike uh, Professor Minotti what did you hear and what he described uh, a, a year-long uh, process there they've tried this uh, four days a week 32 hours it's going well on both ends yeah that was amazing to hear there were a lot of things that stuck out to me about what Mike shared with us. <laughs> Um, that he mentioned he was spending a lot more time with his family. And what we see with these kind of initiatives is that they really do tend to increase men's housework and childcare within the home for those father or for those men who are in that situation. And that there are a lot of men in the United States who want to be more involved in their family lives, but it's usually their job that's getting in the way. And so I heard that come through in his answer And actually, like the gender division of household labor is an area where we've seen kind of a stall Mm -hmm. in progress there in terms of bringing about more equality there. And we are seeing studies, not just this study, but other studies showing that when men are able to reduce their hours at work, it it frees up some time to help out more at home and that men want this. Um, The other thing I would mention is that um, these sorts of initiatives, they're not just for women, they're not just for parents, they're not just for people with elder care responsibilities that across the board, they're having positive impacts on people, regardless of what their personal constellation of responsibilities are. Um, And I, I think I heard that too, in his answer and in the answer from Chuck and Woodbury, that there's this spaciousness to your life that you have more time to breathe and do things like increase your leisure time and enjoy nature things like that. And uh, Chris, we also heard Mike uh, there who called in, who said they looked at inefficiencies and how they were doing things. And they figured out, oh, okay, we, we could actually do this if we, you know, did things differently. We don't need to be here 40 hours a week. Yeah, that was one of the, the, the fascinating things that he said, because you can't just, what doesn't work is you say, okay, we're, we're doing 40 hours a week. Now we're going to do 32 hours a week. You have to make changes in your workflow, your work process, how you communicate. You need buy-in from your employees. You need buy-in from the owner and management. And that's what he was expressing. So if you're, when you make this shift, it's not just cutting the hours. It's you change the nature of how you work during the day and how you interact with your colleagues and how people get rewarded. And that kind of came through just in the way that he was describing how they work together. And, yep, maybe they might have to do something on a Saturday, on a Friday, which was it, uh, mm-hmm. what, 10 hours out of a year? That's that mm-hmm. not very much. But, again, there's that flexibility. That's There's this shift. And, obviously, 
you can see why the employees would like this. But what was intriguing is if you make it work as a business, then everybody benefits. Yeah, and in that UK uh, pilot program um, that we mentioned, uh, it, it cited the fact that that there were fewer resignations. Um, that fifty seven percent of these companies cited a decrease in the number of staff leaving. And so you can kind of, I can, I'm hearing that. Yes, and there was a study in Iceland, uh, which I think was part of this overall study. And one of the things I found interesting there is they turned to the employees and asked them to redesign the meetings. In other words, if we're going to be meeting fewer times, how would you want to redesign the meeting employees? See, now that's a meeting so I would go more... to. We're going to have a meeting to talk about how we're going to fix these meetings. Exactly. I would go to that meeting. And they changed. And, it did, and they did change the way that meetings were run. Let's take another phone call before I disclose too much. Okay, uh, Dave in St. Louis Park. Dave, what did you want to share with us as we talk about a four-day work week? Hey, Angela. Thanks Hi. for taking my call and, and talking about this in general. Um, I guess a, a quick background. So my wife and I have been working remote since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems that you know sometime throughout the pandemic, the tipping point was reached where flexible hours um, – you know, flexible working locations was the norm, and everybody seemed more comfortable doing that. And we've uh, talked about it through some of the other folks before, talking about at a certain point, maybe we'll reach that with these hours too. You know, people seem comfortable that they can work 32 hours, even if other of their colleagues aren't doing that, or their friends and family maybe aren't doing that. And I wonder if there's anything that can be built in to kind of nudge people that feel comfortable taking the time, even if they're early in that first wave of people that truly are only working four hours, 32, and make them feel comfortable protecting that mm-hmm. time. Yeah, Dave, I think you're like me, like imagining this transition, like how how would you even get something like this started? And and Krista, um, uh, Professor Manati, anything you can say about if someone, an employer or a company were thinking about doing this, or maybe if the employees were trying to lead, lead this movement, how would you even get it started? What a great question. First of all, you need to have buy-in across the workplace organization, so across the company, from the very top-level managers to mid-level managers, the managers that are making the day-to-day decisions as they work with their um, employees. Um, so you need everyone to buy in. You need to really work at changing the culture to make it more about the quality of work that you're doing and not about how many hours that you're working. And I think the other facet to this that has already been brought up is going after those inefficiencies and empowering workers to try to figure out those inefficiencies. Workers are oftentimes the best positioned to know what those inefficiencies are because mm-hmm. um, they're the ones actually doing the job. So getting them more involved in how we can improve these workflow processes is is going to help with their buy-in, help them to recognize that the company is serious about this and will lead to better results overall than management just deciding how to eliminate inefficiencies. And Chris, what have you seen? Uh, how how would someone get this started? Or, or how, what has led to, I guess, even the, the pilots? You know, How would someone get this conversation going? So <clears throat> with these pilot programs, there's always a slight suspicion that these are managements, owners, companies that really want this to happen. 
In other words, they're intrigued by the idea. They believe that this would be better for the company. This would be better for their employees. So they join these experiments. I can't remember. Was it 60 companies or something like that? And the one in, in, yes. one in Britain started out, started out with a, about a dozen more. And, yeah, 61 companies. 61 companies. 3,000 people. And so, you know, there, there clearly is this desire in these companies to try this, to see if this will really work. Does everybody come out ahead? And I think the the lesson that comes out is that if management and the employees are committed to making this work uh, and you maintain your productivity, and you probably will maintain your productivity, then it does work. And so it's really as uh, it really is about buy-in. Let's take another phone call from a listener as we talk about uh, the possibility of a four-day work week becoming the norm here in the U.S. Uh, let's, let's see. Like we can go to Grand Rapids and talk to Taylor. Taylor, what do you want to tell us? Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I actually think it's a great idea, especially since there's employers that get upset when there's doctor's appointments and dentist appointments, and especially when school starts or mm-hmm. is that the end? Mm-hmm. You got to take time off work. Employers aren't really that happy, so and they're not open on the weekend. So if we mm-hmm. have that extra free day, we're able to schedule things for that free day and still not take off work. So there's still being productivity that's been met. And Taylor, do you think it sounds like on your end that for a lot of people there'd be such appreciation for having the flexibility that you may stay at a job longer? Yes, and then. Definitely. Right now, I, uh, I'm i an independent contractor, so I make my own hours. But when I was working at um, at an actual other company, I, it was really, really hard to tell my boss, hey, I have therapy this week. Hey, my daughter needs to go to the doctor or dentist because it was also a small company. And they were kind of like, ugh, we guess. <laughs> so... <laughs> In my experience, I just think mm-hmm. it's a better, especially mm-hmm. if other companies around the world are doing it, and right. there's a lot right. better economies in other places besides the U.S., and I think if we start taking on certain ideas from other countries, we can actually make a better uh, way of life for everyone. Thank you. That's Taylor there in Grand Rapids. Um, Professor Manati, uh, I want to ask you about this. Uh, U.S. Representative uh, Mark DeCano, a Democrat from California, recently introduced a bill in Congress uh, in the House that would make the 32-hour work week a national standard. Um, so there's conversations about this happening everywhere. What do you think about that, uh, Professor Manati? I think it's fantastic that we're having these conversations. The U.S. could benefit from having a lot of these conversations. You know, we could tackle, I know that periodically there's initiatives to move towards some kind of paid parental leave for people in the United States. And we are one of the only countries in the world that doesn't offer guaranteed paid parental leave for individuals who are, you know, having a a child enter their home. And Chris, what do you what does that say to you that um, is this something that's gaining steam in the U.S. that it's now, you know, being talked about more in Congress? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are there are a number of experiments going on. Uh, People are talking about it. And, you know, and you're getting calls from, you know, business owners that have, you know, adopted this policy. I think one of the things that uh, the previous caller emphasized is this is why you do want to have national standards, because not everyone's going to embrace it. Not everyone 
everyone's going to like it. So if you have national standards, just like we had the eight hour, you know, the the eight hour uh, workday, five days a week, if we, you know, uh, have rules, regulations that encourage this, I think it would make it a lot easier on people overall. Let's take uh, one more phone call before we're done for the hour. In White Bear, we have Kyle on the line. And Kyle, what do you want to tell us about uh, a shorter work week? Oh, yeah. Uh, I just happened to tune in kind of towards the end, but I own a small landscaping business. Mm -hmm. So something that I've tried to do is uh, sometimes we have like, you know, smaller project, we're more project based, I guess. So what we'll do is say, you know, if we have a full day planned for a job and we finish three or four hours early, we're just done. But I'm still paying everybody for that full day, or if it's maybe a two or three day project. So um, if we finish early, I'm still going to pay everyone for our, you know, planned two or three day project. Um, And that's been a way where we can, you know, shorten our work week and still be productive. um, So you're you're, getting everybody paid. You're building in that incentive to be as efficient as possible with time, but um, everyone still gets paid the same. So, So what do you think about this becoming more commonplace if we had a shorter work week and still had the same pay, Kyle? Um, I mean, I think it makes sense. I mean, it's just, uh, I think, kind of a lifestyle change, especially mm-hmm. after after the pandemic, right. just spending more time with family. And, um, you know, life's not all about work, in my opinion. So, All right. Thank you. That's Kyle and White Bear. And Professor Manati, in just our, our last minute here, uh, is it your understanding that we'll see more of these large-scale pilot programs, these trials, experimentation? Do you think we're going to see more of that here in the U.S.? I certainly hope so. I think that, you know, these results are coming at a really good moment, as has been already emphasized, where people are really starting to think more carefully about how they want to spend the limited hours that they do have in their lives. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, for the conversation. I want to thank our guests this hour. Uh, we, we we talked about this a few months ago, and we're talking about it again because it keeps coming up. I enjoyed hearing all the questions and stories from our listeners. We've been talking with Krista Lynn Manati, a professor of sociology at the University of North Dakota, as well as co-editor-in-chief of the Social Science Journal. And earlier, we heard from Professor William Jones there at the University of Minnesota, who studies and writes about organized labor unions, as well as racial inequality. And as as always on Monday, Chris Farrell here with us, our senior economics contributor. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. This conversation today was produced by Samantha Matsumoto. Be safe, everybody. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m. 